The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. This show is produced by the American Negotiation Institute, and with over 5 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made this the number one negotiation podcast in the world. Hi, my name is Kwame Christian, and I am the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute. Here at ANI, we believe that the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations, and we are passionate about providing providing you with the best content that will help you to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, I want to remind you that we offer consulting and conduct trainings, both virtually and in person, all around the world. Our focus is in three main areas. First, negotiation and conflict resolution. Second, leadership. And lastly, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Check the link in the description below to learn more about how we could work with you and your team. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Kwame, pleasure to be here. Looking forward to our discussion. Likewise, my friend. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a, lot, a lot of different things, so I'll put it into two buckets, really. So uh, first, we kind of have the sales domain with my experience at Oracle and Mercer, and, uh, and now I'm also an author and a contributor uh, to different magazines and uh, just getting involved in this really cool new AI platform that's this real-time coaching uh, that I'm helping build out the AI platform to recommend the best keywords and uh, ways to handle different objections and questions. So a really cool solution there, kind of like gong in real time, if you will. Um, and then the other side of the house, I'm also a career readiness advisor. So I really focus on fixing that workforce readiness gap since students are just so ill-equipped to really enter the workforce. Um, so helping college students, freshmen through seniors, make that transition into their internships and their jobs and how to really safeguard their success. Because I believe that if you start early enough, you can safeguard it. That's great. Yes. And uh, listeners, we are going to probably have Alex back on to talk more about the uh, that AI solution. I think that's really, really interesting. And um, yeah, a lot, lot more to come there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And with your course, you have some modules on uh, negotiation, too, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so it's a 12 course program. We really start with career pathing. Uh, so trying to figure out what you want to do, how to interview, how to uh, speak as well as write in the business best practices since academia is very different. But all the way through, we have financial literacy and then we also have persuasion and negotiation. So some of the basics, including a, a lot of the uh, paradigms from the, the grandfather, uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini, who I saw you had on the podcast. Major kudos for you for that. I, I'll, if, I'm, if I'm speaking candidly, I saw it and I was like, oh, that's good. They're having some principles. Someone come on and teach about Cialdini. And then I saw it and I'm like, oh, wait, wait, wait. I got to listen to all of this. This is great. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. So we have a persuasion and negotiation, two, two little small introductory courses for, for students. That is great. So everybody, links to all of that in the description below. Make sure to check that out. And so, Alex, let's chat about the book because the book is a really in, an, in, an interesting angle on the profession. And so let's just start off with a, an overview and then we'll share with the audience some of the really those key learnings that they can use in their negotiations and difficult conversations. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the book is really this curation, consolidation, 
um, really just focused in on 27 of the best-selling relationship and sales books and some negotiation books as well uh, that I'll talk about. And what I've done is I said, hey, wouldn't it be great if people just boiled down all the best insights from these books and, and put it into a skill format rather than a method or a process? So I said, hey, might as well do it yourself, right? So, um, so that's what I did is I kind of took these best practices, distilled them down to 200 to 600 word sections with action items at the end of how to implement it. And each skill will have a bold phrase that'll be a, another kind of action item of how to implement or the, the most key learning within that 500 word passage. So it's extremely bite-sized action oriented um, and it calls out a lot of the, the different things to do based on Daniel Pink or Dr. Robert Cialdini, um, and, and their insights too. That's great, yes, very smart move, very smart move with that approach because again, uh, people like that type of bite-sized content where they can get exactly what they need and then move on and, and then implement it because I think that's the part that I like the most because you make it easily actionable for the uh, readers too. That's, that's the biggest thing. I mean, a lot of times when I saw that disconnect, a lot of the articles that were short form that people really found valuable um, weren't being reproduced in books. So I'm like, how can I do this book meets blog meets list format that's going to engage with uh, readers who wouldn't normally pick up a book? That's great. And Alex, when we were chatting before, you said that uh, there are a few principles that are specifically oriented towards negotiation. And your your approach to this is a little, is a little bit counterintuitive. So can you talk to the listeners about your negotiation-specific tools from the book? Sure. So I'll, I'll address some of the ones that People might have heard before. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to go down a, a tangent here, or a rabbit hole on things that people have heard on many of your other great podcast episodes. But um, I think so. One of the things I talk about a lot is negotiating to objectives and not asks. Um, if you're making a concession, doing it with so with a stipulation, and all of these center really on being a part of their team. So it's not this kind of combative um, situation where. You, you feel like you have to conquer them or win them, uh, but it's really the situation where I think that when I heard you talk about it in your TEDx, you were talking about compassionate curiosity. So, and I, I love that phrase, by the way, Kwame. So, Thank you. Um, when I was just thinking about that, it was really okay. How do I get on their team? And, and so, what I do is a lot of times is I'll say, okay, in order to build the best case for you, um, you know, here's what I'm going to need. So, you're asking for this whatever discount. So, okay, let me help you build that best case. Let me prep you. And I know you're also a lawyer. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like preparing for a deposition or preparing your, your client for, for court. So, um, it's really, okay, are you, are you referenceable? And, and the more things you can offer within that section, a, a use case, um, a testimonial, a reference, a live video, or agreeing to a certain number of calls about your experience with potential future clients, that's immensely valuable. Um, so you're referenceable. Are you um, looking at this for a longer period of time? That's another big element. So looking at the time frame of the solution. Um, so there, there are a number of different things to really implore um, and employ, I should say. So that's kind of what I talk about in the book as well. And how do you really make sure that you're you're getting the best deal for them, and they feel really like you're on your team, their team? So you're you're listening for them. Bob Berg, Bob, we appreciate you joining us, and thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into the American Negotiation Institute podcast. Negotiate anything. 
The purpose of today is to provide you actionable insights, tips, and generally just takeaways for you to become a more successful negotiator and entrepreneur. And I know that Bob is going to deliver an immense amount of value. So I encourage you to listen to the whole show and sneak peek. Bob is going to share how you can be more influential in your conversations. And it might not be what you think it is. So Bob, without further ado, Mr. Berg, please introduce yourself and briefly share what experience you have in negotiations as a sales leader and also an author. Yeah, and it's great to be with you. Congratulations on all your magnificent success. That is just so fantastic. I know you're doing wonderful work out there. Uh, My experience really when it comes to negotiation in terms of sales is that sales is negotiation. When we look at negotiation, uh, the way I know you teach it and the way that I think it should be looked at, and that is a way of benefiting everyone involved. Because when you think about it, selling is nothing more than discovering what the other person wants, needs, and desires and helping them to get it. In a good negotiation, what are you really doing? You're discovering what that other person needs, wants, and desires and helping them to get it. And of course, uh, it's not an either or. Everyone should benefit within that negotiation. Absolutely. In some negotiations, people, everyone benefits. In some negotiations, it seems like people might not. And so in today's world where that happens and where sometimes there's cutthroat business practices or, or even scandals, you know, you may that you may say that um, someone can, or you, you typically say in your trainings and in your books that someone can give their way to success. So deeply to you in your, in your heart of hearts, what does living like a go-giver lifestyle mean and what does it look like and why should why should listeners adopt the go-giver lifestyle into their lives what a what a great question so let's look at what we really mean by that when, uh, you know the basic premise of when we talk about the go-giver it simply means that shifting your focus and this is really where it all begins shifting your focus from getting to giving now when we say giving in this context we simply mean constantly and consistently providing immense value to others, understanding that doing so is not only a a, a nicer, more pleasant way of conducting business, it's the most financially profitable way as well. And not for some uh, way out, woo-woo, magical, mystical reasons. It actually makes very logical sense. Uh, It makes very uh, rational sense. When you're that person, Shane, who can take your focus off yourself and place it on helping others, uh, helping people, again, get what they want, uh, help solve their problems and challenges, help bring them closer to happiness, well, people feel good about you. People want to get to know you. They like you. They trust you. They want to be in relationship with you. They want to see you succeed. When this is is part of your entire negotiation premise, well, what are you doing? You're looking for ways to help that person accomplish their goals. Help them accomplish their goals. They're much more likely to help you accomplish yours. And again, not just because they're a nice person. They may not be. Okay, but it's because they want what's best for them. And when you help them get what's best for them, and it also happens to be best for you, that's when a great result occurs. Absolutely. That's great, Bob. So you're saying that essentially providing them value, regardless of what their negative intentions may or may not be, you're still, because you know who you are, you know what philosophy you're adopting, what, how you're approaching conversations, you're still going to give. Well, but let me, and let me just say one thing. Let me just clarify that. Again, there, and this is so important, there's nothing self-sacrificial about that. 
There's nothing martyrish about it. You know, you're not taking a hit because that's just who you are. No, it's it's what I always said, you know, say when I when I speak at sales conferences, right, that, you know, nobody's going to buy from you because you have a quota to meet. Right. No one's going to buy from you because you need the money. Uh, or even because you're a nice person. And nobody in a negotiation is going to give you what you want just because you're a nice person or because you want them to. It's going to be because they understand it's in their best interest to. And that's why it's key. And that's why what you teach is so important because it's not a matter of the other person having to be a certain way. It's a matter of you, the negotiator, or a certain way if you're creating the frame from which you're operating, okay, or even able to re, uh, to reset an already negative confrontational frame this person brings. It's going to result in a win for both of you. Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Cassandra, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. I appreciate you. Yeah, it, it is a pleasure to have you, my friend. I've been seeing you all over the interwebs, and so it is a, an honor to finally get you on the podcast. So how about you give the, the audience a little bit of a rundown of who you are and what you do? 
Sure. So my name's Cassandra Worthy, and uh, I will say that I geek out on you as well, Kwame. So I'm halfway stalking you as you stalk me. <laughs> so it really is an honor and pleasure to be on this platform and with you and all of your listeners. Uh, but yeah, my name's Cassandra Worthy. I own a training and consulting firm called Change Enthusiasm Global, and I work with leaders and organizations all around the world to harness the power of emotion to fuel growth through any change and any disruption. It's work that I've been doing for about four or five years now. Um, I spent about 15 years working in corporate America, leveraging my degree in chemical engineering, uh, and decided that I wanted to branch out and do something a little bit different, uh, leveraging my gifts and talents, and that brought me into the work that I do today. Oh, that is great. And you have a book by the same title, right? I do indeed. Change Enthusiasm, How to Harness the Power of Emotion for Leadership and Success that just came out last fall. Super excited about it. Kudos. Well, everybody, we're going to have links to everything, the book, Cassandra's website, how you could work with her. Everything is going to be um, in the links in the description below. And I'm, dare I say, enthusiastic, Cassandra, <laughs> about this, this uh, episode because we're talking about change management. And I really like the way that you phrase it, change enthusiasm. And uh, like I said before, this is going to be uh, part coaching, part therapy for us because we're, we're growing a lot here at A&I. And um, change management is one of the things that we're, we're working on, too. So this is great. And so for the listeners, here's a bit of a roadmap, the top three things that we're going to focus on today. First, we're going to talk about the power of expressing emotion in these, in these difficult situations where we're trying to manage change, and then really be digging deeply into the concept of change enthusiasm. And lastly, talking about the power of empathy and how important it is in this process. So now, emotions as it relates to the changes that we're having in our organization. Many people might say, hey, people just need to get on board. We create the structure, everything is efficient, just get on board or get off board. But we want to focus on the emotion. So why is it so important for us to do that? Yeah, it's so dangerous uh, to either ignore or not uh, invite employees the opportunity to emote uh, and not openly acknowledge and talk about the emotional landscape of an organization. Um, and I've experienced this firsthand. You know, like I said, I spent 15 years working in more traditional roles of corporate and that career was riddled with a lot of change, notably acquisitions. So I've been that leader, you know, going through and leading through change, feeling the emotions, feeling the fear, feeling the anxiety, not knowing if I'm going to have the job the next day, feeling that same emotional energy in my teams as well, and seeing my senior and executive leadership not really acknowledging that emotional turmoil. And what can happen is, you know, I, I say, and, and I, and I uh, mirror Peter McWilliams, who said that emotion is energy in motion. It's energy in motion. And as a chemical engineer, I always think about that, that concept of our emotion being this energy. And, and with that energy, we can either suppress it, we can transfer it, or we can transform it. And when we ignore the very real emotions of our employees and our workforce, then that energy is going to become counterproductive. Either it's going to get suppressed and people are going to bottle it in and then maybe exploding and, and sharing that emotion with people who don't necessarily deserve it, or even just leaving the company thinking that the grass is greener somewhere else, or just venting and really just in that downward spiral on how terrible things are when they're just transforming, transferring the energy, not transforming the signature of the energy. But through transformation, 
transformation, when we transform that energy, we can change the signature and create it into fuel. And when we acknowledge the emotion, we give people the permission to begin that transformation through the power of choice. And anxiety for a given change can get transformed into anticipation of everything that they'll learn, how the business will grow, and how me as an individual going through the change will grow as a result of that. So yeah, emotion is a very powerful entity. I say that it's a, a tool, a resource that's in infinite supply, and we need to learn to acknowledge it and use it. Use it for our betterment and our growth. For her keynote, this was incredible. This was so good. <laughs> I, I was just, it, was, it was one of those situations where I, uh, I kind of sat back and I said, I, I forgot I was doing a podcast. So I became a listener <laughs> for a little bit. This was really good. Eliane, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Okay. So my name is Eliane Cachet-Client. Uh, I am French and um, I am working right now in the University of Illinois at Chicago. And um, my field is international business, mainly international negotiation and international marketing. I've been working for companies across countries and across industries for more than 20 years before I got through PhD and all the degrees you gotta get to be an academic. And today I am an academic as well as a consultant in international business. So this is pretty much what it is. That's great. That is great. And we're really excited to have you on the show to talk about international negotiation because, yes, it's negotiation, but there are some key considerations that we need to keep in mind. And considering how global things have become and how connected we are now with the web, I think it's more important now than ever to understand and have a full appreciation on the international aspects of negotiation. So we are excited to have an expert on the show today. Oh, very much. Thank you. And uh, I am very much excited, too. Fantastic. So let's start off with the, just kind of giving the listeners a rundown of what we're going to talk about. First, we're going to talk about your concept of the sustainable negotiation mindset and then the importance of after the deal, a negotiation after the deal, and then why international negotiation is like no other type of negotiation. So first, let's talk about the sustainable negotiation mindset. So what is the sustainable negotiation mindset? Let's let's just start there. Okay, so that is the title of my book, uh, which was released in 2017, because I I rooted all my theory on physics, classical physics, and quantum physics, explaining that after all, all the natural phenomena and everything that we see uh, in physics are just like culture. There are several things that prevent us to understand uh, about culture because we don't link it to something we are already familiar with. So I created a metaphor, which is the rainbow. Why? Because the rainbow is intangible, yet visible, and this is what culture is. Uh, we only have a partial view of the rainbow because uh, it stops at the ground while the rainbow is actually circular because it's a drop of water. And the culture is exactly the same thing. We just see the way people behave, but we don't see why they behave the way, what is behind their behavior and what is actually uh, shaping their behavior. And so there are, and, um, you know, you, you never really can 
touch the rainbow, uh, you can see it from distance. And this is also what happens with culture. So there are several similarities. And sustainable negotiation to me means that we need to think about not only long-term long relationships, but certainly about more sustainable relationships. It's not about saving the planet. It is about saving your relationships with your partners. Most of the theories about negotiation are short-term. You go, you negotiate, you sign a deal, it's done. I don't see it that way. Mainly now, because we might think that the, the markets are getting bigger because we talk a lot about global marketing, global markets, and we are, as you just said, all interconnected. However, the markets are shrinking because of all the mergers and acquisitions we have every day around the world. That means that we have less and less independent companies and more and more companies that are part of big corporations. And um, I like to say that this is just like when you go to a dance party. If you don't pick the people you want to dance with at the beginning, at the end, you might just dance with someone you don't want to or just don't dance at all. So uh, sustainable negotiation means that you are picking your partners now and you are negotiating with them in a way that this can be long-lasting, a long-lasting relationship because you understand each other and because you have the same vision of future. The key term of sustainable negotiation to me is the vision of future. It's not short-term, it's not long-term, but is. What do you want a company to be in the, in the future? And you need to find your partners who would have more or less the same vision of future than you. And then you can walk towards the future together. So this is pretty much what the concept of sustainable negotiation is about. Today we're with Ethan Inkana. He is a fantastic negotiator who is constantly negotiating and working with fantastic doctors all over the country, helping them negotiate their salaries and helping them transition into new, to new roles. Today, specifically, we're going to be sharing five things everyone should know before they negotiate your, their salaries. So if you're negotiating your salary, this conversation is definitely for you. Ethan, thank you so much for coming on Negotiate Anything. It's a pleasure to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe a few high points in your life in your negotiations. Yeah, Shane, thank you so much. First and foremost, I just want to say thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here and be a part of the Negotiate Anything podcast. So thank you, first and foremost, for making the time for this conversation. I'm excited to have this. Uh, I would say just as a uh, primer on kind of my background, I'm a lawyer by training. So I went to law school at the University of Dayton in Ohio. Uh, and during my second and third year of law school, I endeavored to get my MBA. So while my classmates were all finishing law school, the bar, I was wrapping up law school and my capstone in, in business because I, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer in the, in the traditional sense. I had aspirations, Shane, of being a hospital CEO. Uh, and the reason for that, I'll just share a quick story. The reason I wanted to be a hospital CEO is because my mom is a physician. And growing up, she always would tell me, Ethan, you have to get into healthcare. You will always have a job. And 
<laughs> what she didn't appreciate, I think, in the moment is I didn't quite have the aptitude for the sciences that my mom has as a physician. So my career has been on the administrative side of healthcare. So I've worked in business management, HR, strategy, physician contracting, you name it. In a hospital, I have done it on the business side. And that's kind of what brings me to my work today. So maybe a little bit contra to my mom's point, you will always have a job. I got laid off about two years ago and kind of took me to a, a, a low point professionally, didn't really know what I was going to do next, kind of had my, my bubble burst, as it were, uh, professionally. And at that time, right in that moment of darkness, despair, my low point, I had this idea of why don't doctors have agents like professional athletes? And so I called my mom and we had this conversation and I said, well, who helps you negotiate your salary? And how do you know what your salary should be? And the answers came up to be nobody helps us. And so now I've built a career advocating for doctors, very similar to a sports agent uh, does what they do for athletes. I advocate for doctors to get the value that they've earned in their contracts. Fantastic. So essentially you created almost your own job, your own company from, <laughs> from a moment where you, maybe you felt like there wasn't a lot of hope, but you created that hope for yourself. And I think a lot of times people who are negotiating their salaries feel the same way. They don't have a lot of hope. They don't think that they're going to be able to get a raise. And I want to say like, that's totally okay to feel that way because I felt that way too before in the past. And isn't life just so interesting how in just the really difficult times or like when you feel like there isn't necessarily light at the end of the tunnel, somehow, some way um, you figure out how to make it happen. And it sounds like that's what you did. And so we're going to talk about making salary negotiations happen for our listeners today. And you have five tips that you've taught and spoke about and just helped doctors essentially negotiate their salaries. And so First, would love to hear what the five tips are, and then we'll dive deeper on the first one. Yeah, great, great setup, Shane. So let me just tell you a little bit about the education that I do. So while a big part of my job is the agency for doctors and helping negotiate salaries, there's an entire other branch of my business that does purely education. And the reason that's so important is because I not only want to help resolve some of these problems for physicians. I want to educate them so that they can be successful independent of having an advocate. And so teaching them some of the very basic um, negotiation tactics, approaches that will be helpful, and also what levers to pull as they're going into a discussion um, is really, really meaningful. And so I've been fortunate to travel all over the country, Yale, Duke, uh, Vanderbilt, uh, here at University of Colorado, educating physician residents and physician fellows who are physicians in training to be successful in their, what I call their rookie deal um, as, a, as a first time attending physician. Flo, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here with you today, Kwame. Yes, well, we appreciate it. And um, we are looking forward to hearing a little bit of your wisdom today. Um, but before we do, can you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? 
Yeah, so I like to start with just a series of I am statements. So I am a mother, I am a daughter, I am an aunt, I am a DEI professional, I am rock, I am country, I am a lover of all things open dialogue, and I am a Pearson employee. I am an HR professional with over two decades of experience in quite a number of areas across HR, including DEI, of course, but also learning and development, organizational development and strategy, and also talent acquisition. And so in my career, as you can imagine, I've seen quite a number of things that work well in organizations and things that just aren't well serving. And so fortunately, we're in the space where we can move much more away from those things that aren't well serving or incongruent to where we know we want to be globally, where we want to be nationally, where we want to be even collectively and individually, but move to a space where we're much more free to discuss things that keep us from being great so that we can appreciate, celebrate, and recognize diversity. And that's what I'm absolutely uh, in favor of. And in terms of organizations and how we think, but also just that individual lived experience, because at the end of the day, we're all human. And we want to make sure that hopefully the time on earth we have as pleasant a human experience as possible, both as a giver and a receiver. That is fantastic. And I have now taken a lot of notes on how to give an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Awesome. (laughs) So, um, so in this um, interview, we're going to talk a bit about how to have difficult conversations in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, I think we should start off by addressing the skeptics uh, first, because we can't just start off with the obvious and by saying, oh, it's obvious. We should have these conversations because there are a lot of people who don't think that we should. And so let's start with the why. Why should we even have these conversations about race and other sensitive topics in the workplace? Well, because the why states then who we are as an individual. And as we engage in any type of conversation, we show who we are, what our behavioral patterns look like, what our morals are, what our values are, that social conditioning piece also that's so instrumental in how we're influenced and then as children and then become influencers as adults. So when we think about topics of race, when we think about topics that really have been taboo in the workplace and taboo really in a greater society, it's important that we start with the benefits of how it is we discuss and unearth some of those behaviors that have been learned and expose ourselves to something that's different so that we can sort of retrain our brains and unlearn situations or unlearn perhaps narrative, narratives that have been embedded that just aren't true or well-serving. And so when we think about how that then shows up as a way to become beneficial, then we think less about how it is that we're trying to get someone to change their perspective, but more to create some awareness so that through that awareness, you can have greater knowledge. And when you have greater knowledge, when you know better, you do better and do better then becomes the responsibility than each of us have as we learn throughout this inclusive journey to then pass that learning on and share with others so that we sort of get into this pattern where we're erasing those stereotypes or we're erasing and replacing those scripts with reality. We see that in in education today. We see that in medicine today. We see that in law practices and how laws appropriated across not just the United States, but globally. And if we're involved in ensuring that we have what's uh, equitable, what is accurate, what is really in context of how it is we each experience race and racism because it exists everywhere, then we really then do have that collective approach to ensuring that we're 
planting new seeds. And on that new fertile ground, we have much more of an awareness and appreciation and much better fact finding that allows us to be better individuals and show up a whole lot differently. I agree. I agree. And, you know, what's interesting about the way that you responded was that it didn't seem as though you were creating any, creating any, um, dichotomies where we're saying, okay, it's us versus them, or this is uh, polarizing in any way. Um, when I was doing some of these trainings on how to have difficult conversations about race, we, we like to survey folks before we do it. And um, one of the things that kept on coming up was that they don't want anything political. They don't want anything divisive, those type of things. And it's interesting that there is a almost like a, a concern about anything in DEI being political or divisive. And uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I absolutely believe that it can be. But I also believe that divisive could be this thing that we see in social media that says, let's just settle this once and for all. You put sugar in your grits or no, (laughs) right? (laughs) Uh, Also polarizing can be, you know, do you add honey mustard to your potato salad or no, right? Do you try to do the hustle at the country line dance or no? So all of that can be polarizing. So of course, when we think, think about it along that context, anything in life can be politicized. It can be controversial. It can be very adversarial. And when I think about the work of inclusion at its heart, at at its heart is understanding what diversity is, but really thinking about behaviorally how we show up. Are we inviting? We all know what it feels like to be excluded. And typically when I have this conversation with small groups, large groups, and we think about what inclusion means to us, what culture means to us, and I ask the question, when's the time when you've been excluded? Most people dig all the way back in that cognitive memory bank to something that happened in first grade, something that happened in third grade, the middle school, you know, cheerleading group that, you know, sort of outcast people, you know, not being picked for the football team, not being selected to sing a lead solo. Those experiences are traumatic, but very instrumental in how it is then we start to think future focused and what behaviors that we demonstrate. So when I think about the work of DEI, it can be all of those things. It can be very political. It can be very combative if we allow it. But what I like to think is that it's about having a conversation so that we do recognize, acknowledge, celebrate differences. And in doing so, we're learning something about individuals. We're learning something about identities, populations of people. We're putting ourselves in a position where if we're learning more, then we learn more, we're able to apply that learning to a greater context and bring people along a journey based on, hey, this is my lived experience. And I just want you to know what this could mean. Should we continue down a path if we're not careful about whatever the topic is? And it can be the topic of race. It can be the topic of ethnicity. It can be the topic of sexual orientation, gender identity, what other types of experiences we have as Adult, adult professionals, or even as children. And so we have a great responsibility and opportunity to almost reverse engineer experiences. So not only we help ourselves, but along the way, we're sharing those experiences with others in a way that helps open that awareness and opens the dialogue so that we don't become combative. And the one last you know, note I'll put on the, the question, because I think it's so perfect. We think about how this shows up generationally. And I just had this conversation earlier with someone and specifically in the context of how each new generation has these labels. 
And with these labels, it almost becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy, right? And so you look at the silent generation. We know that the silent generation, those born in the early 1900s to 1920s were given that label because then children were to be seen and not heard. That passed down to the next generation. But then the boomers became this sort of rebel generation. We're around wars and we're not going to, you know, go, you know, uh, along the lines of, what the government said we should do, or we're, you know, going to protest when we think that we need to protest. And, you know, we're going to believe in free love and all of these things. So they got this sort of rebellious label, my generation, probably the best generation, (laughs) generation X, (laughs) right? We still had a label though. So although we were influenced by all of these other generations, our label was, well, you're just lost because, you know, you came in at a time where all of these things were happening. You're on the convergence of newer technologies, et cetera, and so on and so forth. We know millennials, you know, they're just that next generation, very high tech thinkers, et cetera. And now we have Gen Z. Well, if we're not careful, instead of appreciating all of these great, rich experiences that each of the generations get, because I learned some great things from my grandparents who were silent generation, they understood the value of saving money and making sure that you're planning ahead and making sure that you're just not blowing it all. I got really good work ethic from my parents, the boomers who believed in that, you know, stay with a company forever. I don't know that people do that so much anymore, but the, the, the fact here is, and it's a very long response. I get that. The fact is, if we're not careful to take the best parts of each thing that we experience on this lens of diverse dimensions and on the lens of how we can be much more inclusive, then we will create more enemies than, than bring people along the journey. And one thing my mom would always tell me when I was a kid, she said, Flo, you can attract more flies with honey than vinegar. And so if we're going to have this sweet experience along this inclusive way, then we have to understand that there are many paths that people can take to inclusion. We have to agree on that destination, but let's find out the best way that we can conversationally have a greater awareness, a greater degree of empathy and sensitivity to ensure that we're bringing people along rather than creating enemies. And I think that if we can do that, certainly we remove that element of politicizing your experience, your emotions, systemic things that have happened, systematic approaches, and replace them with something new. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Yeah, man, it's good to have you. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, sure. So my name is Gregory Swinton, and I am an architect slash project manager for NBBJ. MBBJ is an international architecture firm. We have 11 offices worldwide, I believe. Um, uh, And outside of that, I think a bigger reason I'm talking today or or inclusive of that role is that I'm also the Jedi program leader of the firm. So. And so let the listeners know about what Jedi is for those who don't know. Good question and good call out. So Jedi is a new term. There's a lot of terms for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, it is that makes up the term Jedi. So as everybody knows, with the onset of like George Floyd uh, last summer, there was this big awakening internally across across the United States and also across my industry, multiple industries, but particularly in the architectural space as well. There's a lot of internal look at um, being much more intentional around DEI as it relates to our realm of influence and to be per- to be honest, looking inside of ourselves. So there's a series of steps. There's a series. There's a lot of work and research done looking at diversity, equity, inclusion within our firm, within our industry. 
within the work that we're doing. One of the recommendations out of that is making sure that internally we also had somebody dedicated, me and several others, um, to move this forward and move the initiative forward and to gain some ground on that. So as the JEDI program leader, I am one of many on point to make sure that our firm is moving all of these things forward uh, in the right way. Fantastic. Yeah. And so we we connected last year when um, NBBJ started working with us, the American Negotiation Institute. And so for those of you who don't know who are listening, of course, yes, we do negotiation conflict resolution trainings. That is our bread and butter. But last year we started doing um, diversity, equity and inclusion trainings, focusing on how to have difficult conversations about race. So it's all about communication and connection. So it's still within the purview of what we like to do with A&I, helping people to communicate more effectively and build relationships, but in the realm of diversity, equity and inclusion within companies. And so in this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of uh, highlight some of the key learnings that um, came from some of those trainings in the diversity, equity and inclusion space and the negotiation and conflict resolution space. I think this is great because you are one of the clients who one of our clients who has have done both of those types of trainings. And so what Greg's going to do is highlight some of the uh, the impact of the trainings and how he's been able to use the skills practically in his role. And then we're going to transition and, and Greg is essentially going to interview me to a certain extent um, with some lingering questions. Now that you've had several trainings and we've been working together for over a year, there's still some things that even though we've touched on a lot, we, ha we can't touch on, any on, on everything. So then we can ad address some of those lingering questions too. So let's go ahead and start off kind of handing the ball to you, Greg, when you think about the key learnings that, that you've, um, you've encountered over the past year, what kind of sticks out to you? Man, there's a couple. Um, I think the first thing is just educating yourself. I think one of the bigger benefits to having you come in there is just and you, you talked about these things in tandem. There's the diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as conflict. Getting educated on on these things, on bias, on um, on how to have a conversation, on the things that you need to do before you have a conversation. The educational aspect of it can't be understated because essentially it's awareness. It's like it's education, but it's also a lot of awareness. One of the things that I think one of the reasons why I think people appreciate having that kind of dialogue and the way I, the way you facilitate is pretty cool, too, um, is you're learning and becoming aware all at once because there's things you didn't know that you can necessarily bring to a conversation or ways you think about something. The, the amount of awareness that comes out of educate getting yourself educated and getting a large group of people educated has been extremely beneficial. So I use education and awareness as synonymously uh, because I, uh, that's a lot of what I observed happening in the firm. Anna, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Kwame. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have you, my friend. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, perfect. So I am the uh, CEO of Transformational Leadership, Inc. Um, it's an organization that is a leadership development company that I started about 10 years ago. Um, and uh, my work is really to help the world have more transformational leaders so we can all be deeply connected to ourselves, 
to the people around us and do our best work. Um, and that's really, you know, that's kind of really my intention uh, for the work that I do. And then prior to that, I was um, in corporate America at C-level roles uh, for 20 years. And so I was with Procter & Gamble and Novartis. And I also serve on the uh, board of a publicly traded company. Fantastic. Well, great. And, you know, I appreciate your humility here, but you are a two-time author. Can you tell the audience about that, too? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'm the author of my latest book is called Wired for Disruption, and it's about the five shifts in agility we all need to make in order to thrive in times of disruption, not just survive, but thrive in times of disruption. And my prior book is called Wired for Authenticity, and it's about the seven practices of um, authentic leaders. And I think both of those, boy, yeah, with this pandemic, both of those are topics that are so needed in today's world. Absolutely. And so since the since Wired for Disruption is the the book that is was most recently published, let's focus the conversation more so on that. But I know that the authentic aspect of leadership will inevitably come up throughout this conversation. And so when you think about the the skills that are needed in leadership today that are unique um, when compared to the past, what are the things that come to mind for you? Yeah, so I think, look, the way in which we lead needs to change because the world we are leading in has changed so dramatically. And what that requires is for each of us to rethink our assumptions of what it means to be a leader. Um, historically, you know, people sort of higher up in the hierarchy or people who are have people reporting to them are usually the ones that we think of as leaders. But in my view, um, in today's world, we need every single person to think of themselves as being a leader. So that's the first distinction that I will draw, Kwame, because so many of our hidden assumptions are people who manage people are leaders or people who are higher up at the hierarchy are leaders. And I would say we need every single human being to believe that they are leaders because the first and foremost task, particularly in times of disruption that we need is to lead ourselves. And so I'll stop there and see if you want, if you want to talk a little bit about that, or if you want me to keep going. Yeah, we need to talk about that. I think, I think that's really powerful, really important. And so let's dig deeper into this idea of everybody in an organization being a leader. Um, let's say that's a new concept for some people. Some people might be afraid of that because it might seem chaotic. Other people might be afraid of that because it may, might mean that it's a they might see it as a threat to their own leadership or their own control. And so let's dig a little bit deeper into what you mean by that and the, the possible benefits. Mm, great, great. So in the book, um, Wired for Disruption, I talk about the five shifts in agility we need to make. And the first and probably the most central shift is what I call neuroemotional agility. And it's our ability to manage our own being our own mind-body state when uh, we're faced with disruption. As you know, these last couple of years, we're all um, in various forms faced with disruption, whether it's changes in our job situations, changes in personal health, uh, loved ones, you know, the changes that are happening for them. Um, we 
uh, what happens in the human body is that whenever we're faced with um, change that is not anticipated, uh, or we get into a situation where we don't feel like we have control, um, our mind-body states um, go into a state of threat. Um, and when we go into that state of threat, um, we can't think clearly, we feel burnout, we try to um, control our others' behaviors, um, we get into really difficult emotions, right? So regardless of what disruption that we're faced with, our first and most important responsibility is the responsibility to manage ourselves and our inner state of being, because all of our behavior comes from our inner state of being. Um, and in this instance, the, the point around neuroemotional agility I'm talking about is to take ourselves from a state of threat to a state of calm and trust, because we know that teams that have trust are actually nine times more agile and able to respond to disruption um, than teams that aren't. We also know that leaders who are in these calmer and more trusting states can create psychological safety so that we can have the kinds of difficult conversations that need to be had because there is so much change that our environment is, is asking of us. We need to reimagine uh, what a brighter future can look like. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Kwame. It is our pleasure. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So right now I am a talent acquisition manager in the Boston tech scene at a cybersecurity company. And I've been in talent acquisition and recruiting for almost a decade now. Nice. Very nice. And I know you recently started a podcast and you have a book coming out. Tell us about that. I did. So in your very first podcast episode, I think, you gave your audience an assignment to do one thing, to ask for one thing that they wouldn't normally ask for. So I reached out to you and asked you if you would be my opening podcast guest. And I was thrilled when you said yes. And the podcast just launched. It's called The Buy-In. It's available everywhere you can listen to podcasts now, including on Apple Podcasts. So thank you so much for doing that. And then I've also written a book called Rise, a feasible guide for job hunters in COVID times and beyond. And that is available for pre-order on Amazon right now. And it will go live available on Kindle and paperback on December 1st. Fantastic. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be part of the story. And I think the, the timing of your book and the podcast couldn't be better because people are always looking for more resources on this important topic. So listeners, check out the description. You'll see, uh, ac you'll get access to the, uh, the links for the podcast and the book coming up. So we're really excited about that. And today we're talking about the mistakes that people make in salary negotiation. So Robin, sell us, why is this so important? I think especially during COVID, it's important because people worry that if they 
negotiate, they might lose the job offer and that they might not be able to find another job offer quickly enough. And so it's really not true. I was laid off in August during COVID. I found a new role and negotiated my offer with them and was actually able to get an increase in compensation making that move, which was fantastic. But in the end, you just have to know your true value and be able to market that from the very first conversation all the way through to the end. And so it's both about marketing and negotiation. That's great. Yes. And so not only are you an expert as somebody who is on the recruiting side, but also you're an expert because you've done it (laughs) in these difficult times. I am. And I also spent the first seven years of my professional career in marketing. So you'll notice that I play marketing into almost all of my job search and negotiation techniques. This is great. Yeah, that's a that's a unique angle and something that we haven't addressed yet on the show. So I'm excited to d- jump into it. So let's get started. The, the three things we're going to focus on today are first, how to handle conversations about salary expectations. Next, we're going to talk about poor strategies for working with recruiters, how we can improve our strategy so we can do better. Um, and then the other mistake we're going to address is failing to know your true value. So let's talk about salary expectations. What do we need to know? So I think as a recruiter, probably about 30% of the conversations that I have are with people who don't have a a predetermined compensation expectation when I speak with them. And that makes it really difficult to move forward in the process. In fact, a lot of companies won't even present your resume to a hiring manager until you give them your compensation expectation. And It's challenging during COVID because so many of the roles are remote now. And so you don't have those defined geographical guidelines as well. And so there are a few tactics that you can use to go in and figure out what your target comp is. First, of course, you want to know your annual budget that you need to actually spend. That's going to be your bare minimum, right? Because the last thing you want to do is take a role that means that you can't pay the bills. And then once you've determined your bottom line minimum, you want to go in and determine your target industry and your top two to three target job titles. And you want to go to places like Glassdoor and Salary.com and LinkedIn and research what the compensation levels are for those job titles. And if the compensation does not align with your minimum expectation, you need to pick a new industry and a new job title. Um, and then redo your research until you get there. And then you also need to compare it with where you were at previously if you were laid off or where you're at in your current job and make sure that it's at least as much or more because unless you're going from the public sector to say the nonprofit sector, you should always be advancing yourself in that way. That's fantastic. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to 
get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We are excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.